We are learning Daf Nun Beis. We're starting from the bottom of Nun Aleph Amun Beis. We're analyzing the Mishnah that said of Kohanas Adrina Lamidin Yosef that if it's a Kohen's wife, then he writes in the Ksuba that if she's taken ransom, I'll just return you to your city. Meaning to say, if it is the wife of a Israel, so then his obligation to ransom her is to take her back as a wife. If it's a wife of a Kohen, then the obligation is simply to redeem her and bring her back to the city, but he can't stay with her any longer. Let's say that besides the fact that this girl was taken captive and we're concerned she was raped, it was also an illegal marriage. It was an illegal marriage. It was a widow who was married to a Kohen Gadol. Now, when that happens, it's still binding. It's, uh, there's still Tfisus Kedushin, and she still has a Ksuba, as we'll learn about. Although it's forbidden, there's still um, a recognized marriage. What happens if the widow was married to a Kohen Gadol and she's captured? He's still obligated to ransom her. Because I can still apply in her case if it's a Kohen's wife, I'll return her to your city. Meaning, what Abai is saying is, is that since it's a Kohen who did this, then the obligation was never to redeem her, to ransom her in order to, to continue living with her. The whole expectation for a Kohen when his wife is, is, is taken ransom is that he's going to redeem her. Uh, simply bring her back to the city, but he'll have to divorce her. So therefore, even if it happens to be an illegal marriage, the obligation is still the same that uh, to bring her back. However, in contrast, if it was a married to a regular Jew, so it's an usher marriage, but it's binding. He doesn't have to ransom her. Why? Because I can't apply what the stipulation is. The stipulation is that I'll ransom you and I'll return you to me as a wife. Now, that can't be done if the woman is forbidden, even though it's a binding marriage, but you can't say, oh, it's meant, that's meant to happen. I should take you back as a wife. So therefore, even though Baifa would be a Kohen, the expectation is only to bring her back as the city. And therefore, if it's forbidden, it still has to be done. But if it's Aishas Yisrael, where the expectation in the Ksuba is to bring her back as a wife, so then that, there's, that cannot be fulfilled if it is forbidden. So it's an interesting idea. By, by Kohen, since the expectation, the stipulation is only to bring her back to the city, then it's done even if she's ostracized. But by Aishas Yisrael, since the expectation is that it says in the Ksuba is to bring her back as a wife, that can't be done if she's Asr, and therefore there's no obligation. Rav Amar, Robert says, no. For the Kohen, since the Isr is, if the Isr would be because of the Shvuya, in other words, if the Isr is simply that he can't take her back because she's a captive and we're concerned she was raped and a Kohen can't be with the girl who was raped, then he's obligated to ransom her and bring her back to the city. But Isr, in our case, where besides for the fact that uh, she was she was a married woman, but, but that was rape. But besides for that, there's another Isra. There was a pre-existing Isra that's that's looming over the whole relationship and the fact that it's Hamon al-Kohen Gadol, then I know Chayv of Dos. He also has to ransom her at all. According to Rava, once there's an, an external factor besides for the captivity, which doesn't allow the Kohen to marry this woman, so now he, he's not obligated at all to ransom his wife because it was Asr to begin with. Interesting thing Rava is saying. Since it was Asr to begin with, then there's no Chiv of the Ksuba to bring her back and ransom her, even though he's not going to take her back to the city. So the Machloka Zabai of Rava is if a Kohen Gadol is married to a widow. And then she's taken captive. So according to Abaye, she has to be redeemed, taken back to the city. According to Rava, there's no obligation for the husband to do that. So the Gemara says, let's say that this Machlokas Hamaram is also uh, really Machlokas Hanam. It says in, in the Brahisa, a man took a vow onto his wife. What type of vow are we talking about? That she won't receive any benefit from him. So they can't be together, and then that's grounds for divorce. Finish base, and then before anything happens, she was suddenly captured. So the question is, they're still legally married. Does he have to ransom her? He must ransom her, and he owes her the ksuba. In other words, now he has to divorce her because of the vow. He still has to pay, um, he still has to ransom her, and he's, when he divorces her, he's going to pay the ksuba. 
That is the opinion of Rebbe Lazar. Reb Shua Omer knows in the Ksuba, he has to give the Ksuba, he doesn't have a Ksuba to ransom her. And we'll explain exactly what Pshat and Machlik is. Omer Rebbe Nasser and Shalte Sunchos, I asked him, Chos, Omer Rebbe Shua knows in the Ksuba, Be'en Opode. This Rebbe Shua says that the husband gives her a Ksuba, but he doesn't have to ransom her. What's the case? Was it a case that he made the vow on her and then she was captured? So the vow was done before she was taken into captivity. Oh, was so dear. Is it even in a case where she was first captured and only only then did he make the vow? In other words, you could say that maybe he only made the vow in order to get out of ransoming. So would he say it even in that case? Or no, perhaps we, you know, we, we, we say that's foul play because you're only making it as an excuse to get out of the need of ransoming her. I don't know the answer to the question. However, it appears that only makes sense if the vow was there before and then she was captured. If you would say that if she was first captured and then he made the vow, the halacha would still be the same that he doesn't have to that he doesn't have to ransom her. So then you know it's going to be the people can do the wrong thing just to avoid paying the ransom. He's going to get out of it and by making the vow. So it makes more sense to say that the halacha is only where the husband had taken the vow before she was taken captive. So what do we have in our hands? We have in our, in our hands Machlokas, you know, the husband took a vow, his wife can't have Hanal, so they can't have relations or anything like that. And then she's taken captive, we have a Machlokas Hanal, whether or not he has to ransom her. So my love, why don't we say that Madri is just going to We're talking about that it was a Kohen. In other words, if it would be Yisrael, where the expectation in the Ksuba is to take her back as a wife, then clearly he wouldn't have a chiv to ransom her because he can't take her back as a wife. She's forbidden. He's going to have to divorce her. Elamai. We have to say we're talking about an Asia's coin, and that's good for the Machlokas. Abai, Damar, Kabbalazar, Abai, who said, they're saying like Rabbalazar, 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 Yeshua, the Machlokas says, since the expectation for the wife of the coin, the coin is only to ransom her to bring her back to the city, not necessarily to continue living with her. So very good. So Abai, who says that you have to ransom her, even though it's Almana, Kain Gadol, is going like Rabbalazar, even though she's Osir because of the vow, he still has to redeem. Rav was going like Rabbi Yeshua, then no, since, uh, since there's an Isra Davar Acher, an external Isra besides for the fact that it's Yeshua, so then there's no expectation that the Kohen ransom her back. Says the Gemara Lo, that's not the case in the Bryce. How come I ask you, what is the case in the Bryce? The case is the wife made the vow. The husband was Mekaimit, he confirmed it. Remember, the, the husband has those rights to either annul the vow or to um, confirm it, confirm it and make it, make it stay. So the case is she made the vow and then the husband confirmed it. So Rabbi Lazar, Savar, who knows in Esva, Ben Shina, the husband put her finger, um, husband put literally her finger between her teeth, like causing her to get a bite, meaning to say, it's him. It's, it's him who's at fault here in the sense that uh, he's the cause because he was Mekayim the Nether, which is very interesting because she took the Nether, but he was Mekayim the Nether. And by doing that, he is, he is the cause against why they can't be together and therefore he has to ransom her. He has responsibility for it since he didn't know it, so he's required to ransom his wife even though she won't return to him. A new Svar. That since he was the one responsible for it, so therefore he has to ransom her. Rabbi Shua Savar, he not saying yes, but I mean, she not, no, the woman, the woman took the finger between her teeth to bite it because she meant the one who made the vow. So she has to suffer from the consequences now that she's not going to be um, redeemed since it can't be taken as a wife. So basically what we're saying is no machlok, it's not related to machlok, it's about Rava. Machlok is about Rava, I was talking about a Kohen Galdo's wife, where the issue is if an external isser precludes this chiv that the Kohen has to bring her back to the city. Um, but as over here, we could be talking about nothing to do with a, with a, with a Kohen. It could be any type of case where it was made, a vow was made by the wife, but, but affirmed by the husband. So now we try to figure out who's responsible for that. And if the wife is responsible, then the husband doesn't have to redeem her, doesn't have to ransom her if he can't take her back as a wife. And otherwise, if the husband is responsible, then he, he is viewed as the one who's responsible for this, and therefore he would have to ransom her. So the Gemara, however, does not accept this. 
If Rabbi Yeshua says that she took the vow, if that's the case, she took the vow and she put the finger between her teeth. So why would she get a ksuba? Everyone agrees she gets a ksuba, but if she was the one who did it, she, and we're saying she's responsible for it, then why should she get the ksuba? It's, the marriage is ending because of her. You usually pay the ksuba, the husband pays when, when, when he decides to divorce. But if she did something that caused, makes her unlivable with her husband, like taking a vow, she can't be with him. And if Yeshua is saying the responsibility of that vow is on her, so then why would, would she get the ksuba? But two, what did the end of the bride say? Reb Nassim was talking about when, when did the husband make the nether? Reb Nassim said, he gives her the ksuba and doesn't have to ransom. Was it a case that the vow was there before and then she was captured? Or was it even in a case that she was captured first and then the nether came? And what was the answer? Somcha said he didn't know the answer. If it's a case that she made the vow, what would the difference be? He made the vow, so now we can understand because the whole thing is that the husband might be trying to get out of his chiv to ransom her by taking the vow after she was capt- taken captive. So therefore, there's reasons to say that maybe it's only if he took the vow before. But if we're talking about that she took the vow, and now maybe that's why he gets out of it. So what difference would it make if she took the vow afterwards? Even if she took the vow afterwards, that should now make that he doesn't have to ransom her. So the Gemara concedes that this was wrong. Of course, you're right. The case is the husband made the vow. And that's why he for sure has to pay the ksuba. And that's why we had a shayla. And what would be if he took the vow after she was taken captive? So it doesn't it sound like it's machlokes Abai and Rava? Says the Gemara, no, Abai Matar The Gemara is going to show us how each Abai and Rava are going to interpret the price in a way that has nothing to do with them. Again, Abai and Rava are talking about Almanel Kohen Gadol, does the Kohen have to ransom her to bring her back to the city? Usually, a Kohen, the expectation is he brings her back to the city not to take her back as a wife because once she's taken captive, she's usher to a Kohen, so the expectation will only bring, bring her back to the city. What if she has an Isser, another type of Isser that wouldn't allow them to be there together? Like Amman al Kangalo. Abai says he still has a redeemer. Rabbi says he does not. So Abai Matar says to me, Abai will answer the bride according to him. If it's everyone would agree that he does have to ransom her. Since it's a coin, the expectation is only to bring her back to the city. So who cares if there's an extraneous sister? Why they can't be together? But the whole chiyuv for the kohen is only to bring her back to the city. If it was Yisrael, if a woman agree he's not obligated to ransom her because since the expectation is for him to bring her back as a wife, he cannot do that if she is forbidden. Mother is kohen nami. Also, in the case if someone made the neder upon the wife of the kohen, he would definitely have to ransom her because again the expectation is only that he bring her back to the city. So who cares that she has an extraneous sister? It's no different than the case of Amon al So where is the dispute? The case is, regularly Israel made the vow upon his wife. So now the Isser is there, and because of the Isser, he can't really, he can't really take her back. So why would it be different in Mamzeris and Nesina that, 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 that there's no chiv to ransom? Rabbi Lazar also about to make her. Rabbi Lazar goes, you go after the initial stage, meaning when was the stipulation chal? When was the chiv chal to be ransom her if she was taken captive? That was made at the time that, uh, that he first, that at the time that he first, um, that he first got married. So since it went, we go, you go and that you go after the time it first, it first took effect. So therefore you had, he has to redeem her. Yeshua also goes with self. Yeshua goes after the end. In other words, when the time you actually have to go ransom her. When is the time now you have to go ransom her? Now when she is also. So obviously the point that we're saying is like this. Mabzeros and Nesina, the Pshad is when the Chiyav was Chal to ransom, 
it was it, 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 it couldn't really work because the chiyav is for for Eishes Yisrael is to, to take her back as a wife and it can't be because it's a Mamzaras Nesina which is Asr. But here, at the time the stipulation was made when they got married, she wasn't yet Asr. Only once they were married did the husband make the nether. So therefore, Rabbi Lazar, as far as you go after the beginning when the stipulation was Chal to take her back and therefore you have to ransom her. Masha'en gain Rabbi Yeshua. Rabbi Yeshua goes after the end at the time you actually have to go fulfill it. So therefore, he's going to exempt the husband from ransoming his, from ransoming his wife because at the time that it's going to be fulfilled, there's no way that he can take her back to actually be his wife. So according to Abaye, the case with the Machlokas is Eishas Yisrael, and, and they're arguing whether you go after the beginning or go after the end. Rava Matar, the May Rava will answer according to his view. Whether it's Everybody agrees the husband does not have to ransom her because since there's an extraneous Isser, why she can't be mutter to her husband, everybody would agree the stipulation doesn't go in effect. And again, according to Rava, it's even Eishas Kohen, um, the same halach is true. Keep leaving madir. They're only arguing about if someone who made the wife the the the, the vow on his wife. Bein beishikon beishisrael. Whether the wife of a coin or a wife of Yisrael. Blazer also made kara. Blazer goes after the beginning when the stipulation was made at the time of the chi of ksuba when they first got married when she was an aser. So therefore the chi of ksuba was already chal. And since it was already chal, so even though subsequently she became Asr, we still say that you have to fulfill the stipulation. Rabbi Yeshua goes after the end, at the time you're going to fulfill the, 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 the ransom, to fulfill, the, to fulfill it. And since in the interim there was an external Isra, why she's Asr, so therefore there's no Chiyav to ransom her. So we're coming out that the scenario of the, the husband who Asr'd who answered his wife with the nether is not really anything to do with the Bayern Rav. In that situation, the Machlokets is because at the time, do I go after the time of the Dechi of Ksuba was Chal and they first got married and there was no Isra? Do I go after the end at the time it's going to be fulfilled when there is an Isra? That's what the Machlokets Hatanoam is. The Machlokas Amoraim is something else completely when from the outset there is an Isser. But it's talking about a Kohen and usually anyways the expectations for a Kohen is only to bring her back to the city. That is the Machlokas between Abai and Rav. Okay, now we continue. Nishbe's Chayav of Dosa. We talk about this Chayav to redeem her um, if she's captured. So, Tana Rabban on Nishbe's Chayav. Let's say the woman was captured while the husband was still alive. So, he has the Chayav to, re- to redeem her. But then the husband died. So, the question is do, do the Yarshim who inherit the estate, do they have to uh, ransom her? So, we say as follows If the husband was aware that she was captured before he died, so the Chayav was already Chal on him, Yarshim Chayav Dosa. So, then his heirs, his Yarshim, are obligated to ransom her. But if Rosman was not aware of it, so he never actually was obligated. So in Yashua they don't have to ransom her. Levi thought to practically do like this. This is what Habibi said. My uncle was Rabkhia, Rav's uncle was Rabkhia. We don't pass on like the Bryce. I look at the time we pass on like another Bryce. She was captured after the death of her husband. If she was captured after the death, the orphans don't have to ransom her. Not only that, even if she was captured during the lifetime of her husband, and then her husband died. The orphans are not obligated to ransom her. We can't read the clause that I'll return to you, return you to become my wife. The husband is dead. In other words, the second price holds that doesn't make a difference if the husband was aware of the capture before or after his death. Either way, the orphans are exempt because the chiyav is only to ransom her to bring her back as a wife. And he, they cannot bring her back as a wife in a situation where the husband is dead. So we end up with the machlokas and bridesmaids 
if there is ever a chiyav on the yarshim to ransom her. Continues the Gemara, if the woman was captured, let's say the people captured her are asking more than 10 times her value, like value as a slave. The first time it happens, he has to ransom her. It's up to him. In other words, the chiyav is only to ransom once. He doesn't have to ransom a second time. Even if the second time they're not asking for more than her value, but once it happens a second time, he doesn't have to. So he, it sounds like the, the first time it happens, you have to redeem her, ransom her even more than in value. But the second time, you don't have to. We don't ransom captives for more than their value. And they take an olam for, to make sure, that the, to fix the world. Meaning if not, you're going to incentivize the kidnappers to go do it and they demand any crazy price and, and ruin Israel. So we don't want to make that to happen. So therefore, you're not poted to more than their value. So the Gemara makes an implication here. It sounds like we would ransom a wife for the value. Even if the ransom is more than the value of Exuba. Meaning, let's say they're asking for more than the 200 Zuz, but um, but it's equal to the value of the woman. So let's say the woman is valued at 300 Zuz and they're asking 300 Zuz. It sounds like from or Trimming Gamliel that you would be Poda. His only, his only qualification is you're not Poda more than their value. So it sounds like you would be Poda to equal to the value of the woman, even if it's more than the value of the Ksuba. Look at this price. If the woman is captured and the, and the people are asking for 10 times the value of the Ksuba, for the first time it happens, you have to ransom her. The second time, you don't have to ransom her. Tanakama holds, again, at the first time you ransom for any amount. If the ransom was equivalent to the amount of the Ksuba, it's not more you have to ransom. But if it's higher, he doesn't have to ransom. So the second price is saying, that you never have to ransom for more than the value of the ksuba. So we have a steer. The first price was saying you don't ransom more than the value of the woman, but it's mashma more than the value of the ksuba. You would. The second price was saying you don't have to ransom more than the value of the of the ksuba. So the Gemara says, both leniencies are true. You don't have to value. You don't have to ransom for more than the value of the ksuba. This is the second price said, or more than her value. Both points are in fact true. Continues the Gemara, Laksa, Chaiber Aposa. If she got sick, then he has to heal her. There's a chi for the husband to heal his wife. So, where does that come from? It's like sustenance. Just like you pay the medical bills, just like you have to provide her with food. So, Tanra Abana Abana, he's always been as a Yisomim. The widow is sustained from the property of orphans. The halacha is remembered that the mechim stays on the yarshim from the estate that they inherit. She also needs to be healed. Because it's just like sustenance. That's why the orphans have to provide it. No, it depends what kind of healing. If it has a limit, it's a one-time thing. Meaning, we can get a set price for what, you know, she needs a specific procedure, something very specific. Then it's rabbis musuasa. Then she is healed from the ksuba. She ain't luck, she But if it's a case that has no limit, areika mizonos, then it's treated like mizonos. So meaning food is ongoing. So what's, what's Roshim Gamliel saying? That if it's something which requires constant care, so then it's considered sustenance and it's paid from the estate. But if it's something that can be completely cured, so what is it? It's like a one-time thing. It's a one-time thing. That's not like sustenance. So therefore, what can the orphan say? They're going to say it's paid from the ksuba. And, and in other words, they deduct that expense from the ksuba that they're obligated to pay. So the, the, basically, just to understand, the Yarshim have two things that they have to pay. They have to pay the ksuba that comes from the, from the state, and they also have to give um, um, sustenance. Those are the two things. So basically, we're saying, when do we say that, that the mizonos, the medical bills are treated like mizonos? Only when it's an ongoing thing, your regular things. That's like sustenance. You're all, just like you need to eat all the time. You also have medical bills all the time. Those they have to pay. But a one-time treatment, something specific, that's that's not like mizonos, since it's not like mizonos. So therefore, the Arshim can say, that's just, if you want that money, then it comes out of your Ksuba bill. 
We treat bloodletting like no limit, meaning in Eretz Yisrael, since they would bloodlet so regularly for health purposes, so that's considered like sustenance. It's not like a one-time procedure. It's not a davar shiyeshel ketzva. The relatives of Yochanan, the widow of their father, she needed to be healed every day. Also, they told him it was costing them a lot of money because they had to pay for the bills. He said to the relatives, go fix a price with the doctor. Meaning, go find a doctor that you can give a set price and he then will always take care of her. Why is that so smart? Because then it's not going to resemble sustenance. By sustenance, you always constantly need to pay for more and more food. There's no lump sum you pay for sustenance for the year or something like that. You don't have that. So even though this girl always required attention, so it was like sustenance, but by making it like a lump sum that the doctor would just take care of her, so then you're going to make it something you can deduct from the ksuba. Rabbi Yochanan felt bad that he did because he made himself like a lawyer. Meaning the idea is that you're not supposed to always be like a lawyer and figure out how to help somebody in, 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 in court. Whatever that Allah is, Allah is. It's like avoiding the payment. It's not, wasn't he? Rabbi Yochanan felt bad that he gave the advice. As the Gemara may carve my sabah, so fine sabah. What did he initially held when he gave the advice? Then what did he switch his mind to? So the Gemara says, may carve my Initially he thought, yeah, but you, ha- you can't hide from your own flesh. Meaning you have to be good to your relatives. So but then he thought, hey, I'm a prominent person. I shouldn't even assist a relative um, with this, you know, trying to circumvent the, skirt the the chiyuvim the, the that we have to pay. All right, more chiyuvim of the ksuba. Let's say in the chasen the, didn't write for the kala, any male children that you will have from me, they're going to inherit the money of your ksuba. Yes, more than their share with, with any of their other brothers. So this is, we're going to learn about uh, the ksuba been indifferent, which is in the event that the wife dies and then the husband dies. So who's going to inherit him? All of his sons. Some of his sons he had with this woman, some of his sons he has with, with other women. So there's a special thing that the amount of the ksuba and the dowry is inherited solely by the sons of this woman. And that's even if he doesn't write it, he's still obligated to honor the shuitanai basin. It's a tanai basin. Ksuba has been indifferent. And we'll see what is the reason for this in the Gemara. But no, no, even if you didn't write the ksuba, that all female girls that you're going to have for me, they're going to live in my house and be supported. Until they're taken for men, meaning until they're taken in marriage. So even if you didn't write that, it's a tonight basin. It's a financial obligation. Um, after his death here, that, 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 that the estate is, is obligated to pay for the uh, sustenance and the, for all the provisions of the, of the girls until they get married. Another one, even if you didn't write that you're allowed to live in my house and be supported for my estate, all the days that you're a widow, you're still obligated to do it tonight. And that's the halacha that after a woman becomes a widow, that she wants to remain in the house and be known as the widow of so and so, not remarry and not take her ksuba yet. So then she can remain and she has the right to sustenance. And even if he doesn't write it, she is still entitled to that. And the men of Yishalim would write it this way. And the men of Galila would also write it that way. That again, that the Almana has the right to choose. You could remain here, not take the Ksuba and get supported. And people of Yudah would write different. You have a right to be supported unless the Yarshim want to pay you out, give you the Ksuba and send you out. In Yehuda, the Yarshim would want, they would give her the Ksuba and send her away. Meaning they left it not up to the widow, but up to the Yarshim. If the Yarshim want to pay the Ksuba, they pay the Ksuba, they don't have to give the sustenance. But they don't want to give the Ksuba, then you have the right to stay and be sustained. So first we talk about this whole idea, Ksuba's Benin different. Again, 
normally if the when the husband dies, the woman collects the ksuba. That's the obligation. So if the woman dies first, so the husband's kind of inheriting the whole dowry and getting off the hook from paying the ksuba. When the husband then dies, all those amounts go only to the sons that he had with that woman. So why is there such a zakana? Right, usually we say that the husband inherits the wife, and now that he dies, it should go to all of his yards. And why is it only going to her sons? Kadeshi quotes We want people to write large dowries, the same way that they would do as if she was a son, to make sure that it's obviously that's like the Torah law that sons inherit their parents. So a dowry is an idea that we want a dowry. We want girls to take possessions from their father's house as well. So we don't want anything holding a father back from writing a large dowry. And he would if he knows that in the event that his daughter dies and his his, the, the, his son-in-law is going to inherit it and it won't come back to his family, he's going to be sad about that and that will hold him back from writing a large dowry. So we say no, in the event that that happens, it will be inherited only by your grandchildren, by, by, by your daughter's son. So therefore, he's incentivized to write a large dowry. So the Gemara doesn't understand. Mika, Mika, to be such a thing. Rahman, Amar, the Torah says, Barah, Liris, Barah, Hashem doesn't care. The Torah doesn't care much about the daughters inheriting when there are sons. Right? The halacha is with inheritance. All these days goes to the boys, no, not to the girls. Also, Rabbanim and the the rabbis are so sensitive to the to the girls. Meaning to say, like, why do we care so much about getting a large dowry? Like that, that a girl is going to get some of the possessions of her father. It's going to come not through inheritance, but through the dowry. The fact that he wrote it. But why do we care? The Torah's perspective again seems to be much more that the sons inherit, not that the daughters do. So therefore, why are we caring about dowries? So the Gemara says, because the dowry is actually also a daraisa idea. Take wives, and have sons and daughters. Take wives for sons. Give your daughters to the husbands. This is the advice here from Yermia. So we understand a father is marrying off his sons. That's within his control. Is, is it in your control to marry off your... Uh, your daughter, it doesn't work that way. Son, a boy goes and finds a girl. A girl doesn't go find a boy. So what's going on? What's the in the Pasuk that arranged for your girls to get married? What is the Pasuk saying? Give her good clothing. Give her some property. So the men are going to go quickly, jump at her and marry her. So we see that there is premise. There's a very important thing. The Gemara considers it as if it's a dowry. So for you to have a dowry, it's important for a girl to have a dowry. So now we understand that is a real true value. We don't want... The men being um, concerned that, that that it's not going to stay within the family, and therefore they made a new takana that the ksubas of been indifferent. Says Kama, how much should a person give away to a dowry? Like, what's the right thing? How much should it be increased towards? Even until a tenth of a person's possessions. Says the Gemara, maybe the son should inherit the ksuba the baal. They shouldn't inherit. They should inherit. I'm sorry. The aim of the avleir they should inherit what the father gave. To to the mother, in other words, whatever dowry you know, the, the the all the furniture and the clothing, whatever it is that the father gave, that's what they should be inheriting. But the bow, what the husband pledged for the ksuba lolevus, they shouldn't they shouldn't be inheriting. Meaning, there's two things: it's a ksuba obligation, and then there's the dowry. Both of those things were saved by the husband when the wife died, right? He inherited the dowry, and also he saved on the ksuba payment. What do we say? Ksubasman and dechren is that they get. All the all the amount of the ksuba. Why are we getting the amount of the ksuba? They should just get the dowry, says the Gemara, because in Cain, the father wouldn't write the, the, the proper dowry. Why not? Because he's going to feel resentful. Here I am, I'm giving all the property, and it's going to go to the grandchildren, and uh, he's going to feel resentful in the fact that... Um, 
that the husband isn't none of the things that the ksuba that he's pledging are going to go to them. So that, that's also going to cause him not to give a large dowry. If he knows only what I get is going to go to my grandchildren, but what you're pledging here in the ksuba payment is not going to go to my grandchildren. That's right. It's going to be split evenly with all your sons. So then he's not going to give a big dowry. So we have to say no. Even all the ksuba, he's going to match that the husband is all going to go only to the sons from this wife. Says the Marvim, if the husband, if the father wrote a dowry, then the husband writes the stipulation that the kids inherit the ksuba. Let's say it was a scenario where the father did not write a dowry, then the husband doesn't have to write the stipulation that they'll inherit the ksuba. Meaning, we're saying that there's always ksuba's been indifferent. Maybe it should only be in a scenario where a father wrote the dowry, because that's how the whole thing happened. We want the father to write the dowry. That's why the husband has to match it with the ksuba. So if the father doesn't write the dowry, maybe the husband doesn't have to match it with the ksuba. Says the Marvim, the rabbis didn't distinguish. They wanted to be there if the father wrote a dowry, so therefore they did it, even in a case where it happens to be he didn't. Says the Markash of Basmin Abundant Namatera. So a daughter among sons should also inherit the ksuba of her mother. So we mean to say, if the point is the dowry to stay in the family of the Kala, so it should work. Let's say there were no sons and there was only a daughter. It's only daughters. So the halacha is that it's only ksuba has been indifferent, only the male sons get it. But why? Even if there's a girl, we should still be masakin that she should get it. Again, what's the reasons? To make sure the father gives a large dowry. Why are we only saying it's boys who inherit? The way that they made the stipulation is like inheritance. Meaning, yes, the reason is to incentivize the father to give a big dowry, and therefore that reason is applicable even if there are no sons but only daughters. But the way the Rabbanan legislated it is that they made the halacha to be like inheritance where only sons take it. Says the Marbas made Abanos Teros. Let's say it's a daughter among un, un daughters from the other marriage, meaning let's say the, 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 this husband only has daughters. So then, what's Allah HaNachla when there's no boys so it goes to the girls? So if let's say he has one daughter from this wife and another daughter from another wife, so why don't we say that oh, that the has been indifferent here should apply and it should go to the girl from, from this wife and she should inherit the... Uh, the, the, the ksuba and the dowry says, the rabbis didn't distinguish. The daughter never inherits her mother's ksuba since they made it like Nachla, and in a case where they're a boy, she doesn't inherit. So therefore, even in a case where there's only other daughters, she also doesn't inherit. Says, let her collect removable properties. It says that she only takes, we learned this back on Dafnun, she only takes from real property. Why? Why can't she collect um, even from movables, as the ksuba just like the ksuba. The ksuba is just collected from real property. That's the halacha. It's only collected from the estate from karka. So too, the ksuba has been indifferent. As the what about taking from mishubadim? If let's say real properties were sold, the husband sold real properties. So what, the the wife has the right to collect from those properties. There was a shibud on them. So why don't we say ksuba has been indifferent? Should also have the right to take away from sold properties. As the yartan tanan, the idea is that the sons are like inheriting it. You can't inherit something, a property the father was sold. So the wife, when she collects her ksuba, it's like she's collecting on a debt. She takes away from even from Mishubadim, even if it was sold. But the um, but the, the children, even though the, the idea is that they're taking their mother's ksuba, they can't take so much. They can only take as inheritors now of what is here. So if, if it was sold, they cannot inherit. So maybe they should collect the ksuba even though there's no dinner left over. Meaning the Mishnah later on is going to say there's no ksuba has been indifferent unless there's at least a dinner's worth of property that will remain in the estate after the ksuba is collected. Why do we say that? Why don't we say that even if there won't be a, a surplus of a dinner left, they should still inherit? Where did that come from? Says the Gemara. But welcome to Ma'akar Nachla. The rabbis didn't want to completely uproot the regular laws of Nachla. So if there's going to be a surplus of a dinner and at least there's somewhat of the regular amount left, so then the rabbis did not... Uh, just then the rabbis instituted ksubas been indifferent, but if there's not an, a regular amount that's left, so it's going to be completely uprooting the regular law, so then the rabbis said that there's no takana ksubas been indifferent.